to put a nexus between what is the real risk exposure here and what can I do that actually just will make sure that I have a good defensible position. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 394 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. Transfer pricing, or in short, TP. We covered transfer pricing in April this year in episodes 384 and 385. If you remember, episode 384 was about the general concept of transfer pricing, why it is an issue and how you can play it safe. And then in episode 385, we spoke about the simplified transfer pricing record keeping that can save you a lot of time and hence money if you qualify. Today, let's talk about the all-important, reasonably arguable position and transfer pricing and what risk factors the ATO is looking at. Reasonably arguable position or RAP, as TP experts call it. Benedict de Auric of Anderson in Australia will show you how to get a RAP and why it is so important, especially if you tick some of the risk factors the ATO is looking for. Chapter 1. Background Information. Why is the ATO so active on transfer pricing? And is that typical for all over the world or is the ATO particularly active? So I think stems back from that ATO has, or as we know, Australia has one of the highest corporate tax rates in the world. And in particular in our region, obviously that makes them quite aggressive because there is an incentive to making sure that we're paying as little tax as possible if you are a taxpayer here or if you have your business here. And that's just natural because as we all know, it's not that you don't want to do the right thing, but the corporates here, they are all businesses and tax in businesses is a cost and you want to minimize cost and maximize your income so you have the best profit. So it's just a natural thing that happens. But said that, obviously you want to follow the rules and comply that is, you know, the sort of, sort of the thaw, thumb or the risk exposure that you have if you are a, a multinational enterprise and you are, have operations in Australia. However, said that, so there is ways of doing this in a good way and, and still making sure that you are compliant with the sort of quite onerous Australian transfer pricing rules and regulations and, and obligations. And that's what we wanted to talk about to today. But I think first we just wanted to have a little bit of background of the actually risk exposure in Australia and also what is actually required and what are the powers of DHO? How far can I take this with you? And um, yeah, and what can you do to safeguard you, minimize any risk that you might have? The ATO's transfer passive documentation requirements and guidelines, they actually date back to the 1980s and probably one of the earliest in the world too. And I think for, for reasons I just explained, being that whole high corporate tax rate and also the whole being an island, also very, you know, successful resource companies. So we really want to make sure that <laughs> the income that's earned in Australia stays in Australia and is taxed. So that's, so that's the background. So it dates back in the 80s and a lot of the uh, transfer pricing guidelines that's developed with OECD, a lot of the Australian taxation of officers 
that time in the earlier stages were actually part of developing that with the OECD and have had a, a good footprint. And that's also why we can see today that our transfer pricing guidelines in Australia are completely aligned with the OECD, so, which is a good thing. And you can also see a lot of our neighboring countries in Southeast Asia in particular, a lot of their tax authorities has actually been trained by the HO and setting up uh, their sort of obligations and legal requirements. So you could say that's not good because then they also quite are getting strict as well. But the more there's alignment with these rules, the better it is in terms of, you know, you assist on the same framework and that's uh, you are more likely to avoid double taxation and other issues like that. There's a myriad now of uh, transfer pricing rules and guidelines in Australia and the essential one was recently done in 2014. And the reason why they did that was to make sure that it actually was linked with the general anti-avoidance, tax avoidance provision, part 4A, if anybody's familiar with that. So what that does is that it gives the commissioner powers to go in and actually, if they believe that a, there is a, a scheming going on, or there is a tax benefit in Australia, which means that there's unpaid tax, they can actually go in or the commission could go in and change the, the business situation of the taxpayer to have, for example, a higher tax income in than they have disclosed or they have, and then penalize that on top of that. So they can do like a compensating adjustment of tax owed and penalize you on top of that. So that that is a real risk because that will take you, you know, that's you have to go down the court way and all that. Said that, uh, what you can do uh, as a taxpayer and uh, is that you can go and you can prepare transfer pricing documentation to show that the taxable income that you're disclosing or filing is the right one. And it's so the transfer pricing documentation is almost like you are insurance policy for deterring the, the tax office to assist uh, that that potentially could have been, you know, any profit shifting or anything like that uh, going on. When we come to a transfer pricing documentation, in your notes, you actually call it something that I struggle to pronounce, but you mention it a number of times. So I assume it's kind of a, an insider word, and that is contemporaneous documentation. And I assume that means documentation you prepare as these transactions occur. And what you wrote in your notes, one really caught my eye, and that is you write, failure to prepare contemporaneous documentation cannot be remedied later. So that basically means that if you don't do it now and later on you come into a transfer pricing audit, you can't go back and work things out. Does it mean that or does it mean you can still dig through your invoices and bring it together to show that it makes sense? Or do you actually already need documentation that shows which method you used and how you determined the transfer price? Does it mean that? So firstly, I'll, I'll answer your first question. So contemporaneous means that transfer pricing documentation is not an obligation to prepare, but it's it's a very good idea, as I just explained, because you can you have already put together your position of why your taxable income is the way it is. So it's called on a self-assessment basis. And they would like to do that within the year of the tax year. And that's how it becomes contemporaneous. You don't need to assess your pricing every day or on a weekly basis, but you should definitely 
assess it during the year if any change is going to happen. And then by the end of the year, before you file your tax return, you should prepare that transfer pricing documentation. And if it's not prepared for that year before you file your tax return, it cannot be called contemporaneous. And so, so what that makes sense? It, yes, that makes sense. But then what does it mean if, you know, if let's say I haven't done it and then I come into an audit, what can I not do? So if you haven't done it, you can't go back and, and change the past and say, and then you can't get what's called a reasonable, arguable position. That's what it is all about. You need a reasonably arguable position, a rep. Yes. So if so, you have a reasonable, arguable position, that means to get that, it means that your transfer price and documentation have followed the recommended approach or guidelines uh, of that HEO has to put together this transfer price and documentation. And then it's done in a contemporaneous manner. So which is before the tax return is is lodged. Yes, but is there still something I can do if I haven't done it? Is there still a way to get a reasonably arguable position if I haven't done anything? So for example, can I still dig out invoices to show that then you just that's more a defense it won't so what the reasonable arguable position does is it's not it's not a bulletproof saying oh the ato is going to love it and they're just going to say that if if they're challenging it um they're just saying you have done what you're meant to do and you put this forward and you have you know followed the guidelines so it means that if they find that they don't agree with it and they come up with another they reconstruct your situation and say, we, we believe this is the right way that you should have priced your products or how you should have, this is how much profit you should have earned for what you're doing here. So they can still adjust for that. However, they can't penalize you if you have done this. So it comes down to the penalties. If you get challenged without having a reasonable, arguable position, it means that you can both get the adjustment and penalize on top of it. So there is a reasonably argued position, the rep. And then there's a defense and the reasonable argue position is about penalties and the defense is about the actual transfer price, correct? Yeah. So it's all about, this is what we talked about in this first section. So this all comes down to that you as a taxpayer demonstrate that the way uh, that all your international related party dealings are in accordance with the arm's link principle. That's the essence of the documentation to demonstrate that and then do that in a contemporaneous manner, which means you have done your analysis during the year and it's completed by the time a lot your tax return. So that's on an annual basis. And then I wanted to ask you something different. And that is you say the transfer pricing legislation does not depend on the test of control or share ownership. It applies to whether the parties are related or associated. And I wanted to ask you, how is this word related or associated defined? If you don't use a test of control and you don't use a test of share ownership, how do you define related or associated? I assume then that you kind of have a soft definition that is more about quality than quantity, correct? There should be the ownership is 25%. Sorry, I can't. I can't remember that one. So oh, I see. Okay, so you do have hard and fast. There, there is one, but I, I think it's it's twenty or twenty five percent. What it's a little bit different than the what's normally. But so that means it's not wishy washy. There are some clear cut rules. You are related if, but it's they're just lower than normal. Okay, can you just quickly Google it? Yeah, yeah, I am. I am. <laughs> so 
in international lady parties are readouts. So they are persons who are not dealing wholly independent with one another in a commercial fin- uh, in their fin- commercial and financial relations. So it's any overseas entity or person who participates directly or indirectly in your management control or capital. Any overseas entity or person in respect of which you participate directly or indirectly in the management and control of capital. Okay, so it is soft. There is no hard. Okay. It is. It is soft. I, I'm sorry because it used to be 25%, but that's obviously changed. I think. Okay. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. For the in terms of capital, for the purpose of the definition of international related parties, capital means an interest in equity, voting rights, or income distribution of 20% or greater. So there is a hard line and that is 20%. There is a hard about 20%, but then you can also have a person who is, for example, the CEO. So you can have a related or associated party with a capital percentage of less than 20%, but you definitely have a related or associated link if your capital connection is more than 20%. Yes, yes. And the, the reason why it's, it's said like that is that it's softer than normally you would say 50%, right? Or 51% in a normal sort of control situation. Yes. So that means you get into transfer pricing a lot quicker than this normal. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Just to quickly summarize, the transfer pricing rules are in subdivision 815B to 850E of the um, ITAA 97. And then also subdivision 284E of the Tax Administration Act 53. And then you also have part 4A, which I think sits in 36. I think that sits in the 36 Act. Yes, yeah. And in particularly 177CD, which is the part of part 4A, which is the general anti-avoidance provision. Good. So we come to that later. Yes. Good. So coming to point two. Chapter two, international dealing schedule. International dealing schedule pays a big role in transfer pricing because that's where you actually disclose your transfer pricing, correct? Yes. So the international dealing uh, schedule is disclosure form that is filed with your income tax return. And on that, you have to disclose the type of dealings that you have, the countries of your main trading partners, the transfer pricing method used, and that's the transfer pricing method that you have also hopefully have documentation to support that, and level of transfer pricing documentation prepared. And I wanted to ask you, I've only ever seen the international dealing schedule as part of a company tax return because all my clients who need to do an IDS happen to be companies. But do you also have an IDS with a trust tax return or with an individual tax return or a partnership tax return? Yes, you do. If the, if Yeah, I think you would. You would yeah, you to. would. So, it's the same. It's the same yeah. that applies. Yeah. So all tax returns have a supplement for an IDS. Yeah. However, you have sort of the threshold of $2 million in international related party deals in total, mm-hmm. which, you know, it might sound big if you're a smaller company. But it also includes loan balances. So you can quickly get up there. And does it also include when you work on a commission basis and let's say you only get 20% commission on the total transaction. So do you then only need to take the 20% sales into this 2 million threshold or do you need to take the total transaction into this threshold calculation? Let's say you organize a sale of $1 million, but the actual transaction is actually between the customer and the overseas entity. You just facilitate it. 
And then only, you only what what you have between only your income of that transaction between the related party overseas and you. Okay, so that means you would only need to put the twenty percent commission in there. Yes. So n normally, so this is what we talked about last time. So so filling in this international dealing schedule, it's always good to to seek advice. And I'm not just saying it to you know promote our my own industry and services, but it's just, I see a lot of times when we are helping taxpayers out here that they've done it themselves or they have had a, a very local boutique accounting firm helping them. And they can just answer things unnecessarily putting red flags up that's not there because they're, they're not answered properly. So it's always good to seek advice before you do that first time. And then second time, you will sort of know more about it. Because that's also something, there's a lot of the, for example, just the transfer pricing method used. You can quickly disclose that you're not quite sure what you're doing if if you're using a very strange transfer pricing method. At DHO, they, they run algorithms all the time to pick up or screen strange answers. And they will also have, what they also use the ideas for is just screening for normal risk factors that they have seen in the past. That could mean that there is profit shifting going on or there's something going on that's not quite right. Now, before we go through the risk factors that make a review or audit by the UATO of your overseas entities' transactions more likely, here's a quick word from our sponsor, DocuSign. Hi, my name's Diane. I'm an accountant and I'd like to make a confession. Last financial year, I seriously screwed up. I left my paperwork in a taxi. Yep, confidential contracts, tax file numbers. I was mortified. It's why this year, my accounting firm is using DocuSign. Going digital has saved us time, money, paperwork and stress. Make no mistake. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. Chapter 3. Risk factors that can trigger an ATO review. What they're normally, those risk factors are low performance in comparison to the industry standard that you're in or, or losses or continuous losses. There is large amount of intellectual property or large amount of payment for intellectual property that any finance arrangement uh, that been quite focused on for quite a few years now and also any restructuring they would be very keen on seeing uh, restructuring and if, if that's done in the right manner. They've also been quite worried about migration of IP out of Australia or where there's been mismatches where you're moving, for example, in like research and development areas where on paper it looks like they're moving the whole office out, but in substance the office is still staying here. So just sort of capture those things. Yes, okay, good. So the four things that... The ATO is looking for is based on the information they get through the IDS and the ITR, you know, or the CTI, you know, whatever tax return it is, is low performance or losses, IP, finance arrangements, and restructuring. And I think of those four, the biggest warning for small to medium enterprises, I think, is losses. I'm imagining, a, I don't know whether that's called a matrix, but you know this square that you put a cross in and then you basically have four fields. And then if on one axis you have international dealing schedule or not, and on the other side, on the other axis you have profit or no profit, then I think 
if you have an IDS and you have a loss, then your risk of an audit, of a transfer pricing audit is very high, where they, where, whereas if you don't have an IDS, meaning your total international related party dealings are below 2 million. So if you don't have an IDS and you have a profit, then I think your transfer pricing risk is very low. And if you are in the middle, meaning you have an IDS, but you have a profit or you don't have an IDS, but you have a loss, I think then it's kind of medium. But do you agree that if you don't have an IDS and you have a profit, then your risk is reasonably low? And if you have an IDS and you have a loss, then your risk is reasonably high. Do you agree with that? I do. I do agree with that. Yes. Let's come to point three. Or do you think there's still something we should cover? Also, just wanted to clarify before. So today we're not going to talk about significant global entities, which are entities that has global turnover over one, one billion. So I, I just want to clarify that. So today we're just focusing on small to medium enterprises in Australia, but they're part of a global group, but not, not a significant global group. Exactly. So for us in this talk, only the IDS, only the international dealing schedule is relevant. Yeah. And the local transfer pricing documentation. So saying all that, DHO also understands that if you are a a small to medium taxpayer and you don't have, as you said, you, you could also have an IDS and be profitable, right? However, to do like that sort of, even though it's on a self assessment basis, but putting together a transfer pricing documentation that is contemporaneous and that is uh, compliant uh, or sort of following the ATO's recommended transfer pricing guidelines for documentation, that could be quite costly. So you can sort of, if you're weighing up, well, I do have to do an IDS. However, I'm not in losses. I don't really have that any you know risk area that sort of ticks anything. So I sort of think that the the compliance cost and burden in general is just outweighing the real tr- transfer pricing exposure I have. The ATO have set up some simplified transfer pricing record keeping, which means that the compliance cost would be much lower because you can, if you are eligible for some of these options that they put in this sort of safe harbor provision, so I will try to, then you can do that and still have a wrap and meet the guidelines of a tier. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be challenged or audited, but it will just make sure that you can safeguard you up to a certain point, making sure that you, you've done the right thing without have spending too much on it and in comparison to your risk, risk exposure. Yes. And we covered the simplified transfer pricing record keeping in episode 385. Yes, we, we did. We spoke yeah. last time. We spoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll come we'll, and further on, we'll probably also have some examples on how to use it. So also what I recommend to, to taxpayers, so even if you're not eligible for these options, there is in this uh, simplified transfer pricing record keeping guidelines, is that you can a lot of times, and, and again, maybe seek some help to start with, you can create a lot of good quality documentation that doesn't have to be extremely comprehensive. You can still just by looking at your business and also with the risk exposure, how much do I actually need to do to show that I am doing the right thing without going completely overboard? And one of the things with what I mean with overboard is when you're putting transfer pricing documentation uh, together, one of the steps in that is to 
the whole thing is about proving that you are what you're doing is in accordance with the arms link uh, principle. And a lot of times that will make means that you have to benchmark your own situation to third parties. And to do that, a lot of times you will have to go out and do a benchmarking analysis. And that means to, first of all, you probably need to get a professional services in to help you or advisory uh, because they have licensed it to huge databases that can run these screens for finding these benchmarks. Or, and they have to be independent comparables to your situation. So a lot of times you don't need to do these when you are when your risk exposure is not significant. So a lot of times there's other ways of showing that you actually, let's say the, the profit margin that you are earning here in Australia is appropriate considering what your economic situation is and, and what you're doing. We don't, you don't need to do these sort of uh, big transfer pricing documentation. Like, of course, in situations where you have a lot of risk factors, even though you're small, you probably need to, but it's more, you have to really look at your risk profile too. Is, is it, you know, like to put a nexus between what is the real risk exposure here and uh, what can I do that actually just will make sure that I have a good defensible position. Benedicta Ulrich of Anderson, Australia, in Melbourne. So make sure you got a solid rep, a solid, reasonably arguable position, especially if you tick one of the risk factors the ATO is looking for. So, for example, if you have a loss when you exceed the threshold for an IDS, the international dealing schedule. And don't do fake losses when you're in that position. And with fake loss, I mean a loss that is due to an intergroup charge. In the next episode, episode 395, let's go through five transfer pricing examples with Benedicta Ulrich of Anderson, Australia. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.